If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. We have reached chapter 11 of this book in which there is um, a change, a transition. We are moving from the heights of David's life and now we will begin to descend into the depths. This is perhaps one of the most famous passages of the Old Testament that deals with a passage that shows us the danger of sin. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 11, beginning at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned home. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. 
And as the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell, Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That your word would not only teach us, but it would convict us. That it would change us and the way we live. That we would never cease fighting with sin. That we would never be complacent about sin, but rather that we would seek to mortify it each and every day of our lives. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you to take a poll... What is the greatest danger to the church, and maybe specifically to Christians today? What do you think the answer would be? I think perhaps some of us would say the threat from foreign pagan religions, from Islam, from Buddhism, from all these other religions that deny who God is and deny the Lord Jesus Christ. I think others might answer, well, our culture is the greatest threat. Our culture that seeks to take us away from God, to denigrate marriage, to take children from their parents, to kill children in the womb. That's the greatest threat. Those are threats. But I would put it to you that this chapter shows us that the greatest threats that you have as a follower of Jesus Christ today is to overestimate your spiritual condition. Now, Overestimating your spiritual condition is not just true of those who think they don't need Jesus to be right with God. No, it's also true of believers who think that they can play with sin 
and remain unharmed. Sin is like a fire that we take up and bring to ourselves thinking it's going to make us warm. But instead, we suffer great burns. This is one of the great warning chapters of the Bible. Here we have David, the great king, the type of Jesus Christ. And he falls because he thought he could stand. So this morning, let's look at David's sin and see how we can respond in our own lives to it. I want us to see three things about sin this morning. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at a proper reaction to sin in repentance. But for this morning, first I want us to see that sin is dangerous. Second, I want us to see that sin is controlling. And third, I want us to see that sin is deadly. Sin is dangerous. Sin is controlling. And sin is deadly. Let's start by seeing how sin is dangerous. And the danger of sin begins in seeing sin's enticement. Seeing how sin draws us in. Makes us drop our guard. Now remember where we are at the beginning of this chapter. David is at the height of his power and his life. His kingdom is strong. David has defeated Israel's enemies. We saw in chapter 10 how David has defeated the Ammonites. He's defeated the Syrians. He's defeated the Philistines. And now all that remains is the mop-up action in Ammon. And that city is now besieged. It will not be long before it falls to David's forces. But even beyond the affairs of state, David's life is now at a height. The Ark of the Covenant is in the capital of Jerusalem. God has given David the covenant promise of an eternal kingdom. And David is known now as the kindness-giving king. We saw that in the way he treated Mephibosheth. We saw him even wanting to show mercy and love to his enemies, the Ammonites, in chapter 10. Let's put it this way. Nothing could be better for David right now. Now let this be your first warning. Because we look for bad things when times are bad. When our circumstances are down, when we have difficulties, that's when we expect to fall into sin. But when things are good, we assume that we can easily live and serve the Lord. We assume that the problem we have with sin is related to our circumstances, and that if we could just get our lives on track, then everything would be easy. David shows us otherwise. And there is the setup here in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. The time for war had come. Now, 
I think sometimes we don't understand how ancient warfare worked. Because if you are like me and you've grown up on stories and movies and documentaries about World War II, you have seen all sorts of incidents of warfare in the midst of the coldest conditions of winter. Perhaps the most famous of that is the Battle of the Bulge that was fought in some of the worst weather conditions you can imagine. We can picture in our mind's eye American soldiers digging into frozen ground, trying to keep themselves warm while bullets fly overhead and tanks explode. But in David's day, in the winter, when weather got bad, you went home. Even if you were in, involved in a fierce war, you didn't fight in the bad weather. It wasn't practical. And so armies went home and they came back out in the spring to fight. And that's exactly what's happening now. You've even heard a bit about this in the recent news as we talk about the fighting season in Afghanistan. And there was criticism of why our government decided to leave during the fighting season as opposed to waiting until the winter till everyone just went home. That's the setup here. It's spring. The custom now is for kings to go out and lead their armies. And not just any old kings. That was David's custom as well. David had always led his armies. As recently as chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, we see David leading his army against the Syrians. But now... He remains at home. Now, why is this important? Well, we're shown in verse 2. Because it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Instead of doing his duty, instead of being with his forces, David is at ease, he's comfortable. He is, quite frankly, bored. He gets up from a nap and he decides to go walk on his roof and look out and survey the city. Now, this is at a time in the day when no one else would be up on their roof. Now, you have to remember, roofs in Israel at this time were an extra living area. They were flat, not like our sloped roofs. And you would do things on your roof. But at this time of day... People would be working. Women would be cooking. The army's out in the field. This is not vacation time for all of Israel. There's stuff to do. But when you're the king and you're not out at war and you're bored, you go up on the roof. And so when David is active, should be active, he's neglectful instead. He's not thinking about his army. He's not thinking about his wives. He's not thinking about God. There is a short statement that is worth remembering, perhaps even writing down. And that is that omission usually precedes commission. That is, the omission of our duty, the leaving of our duty undone, often leads to the commission of sins. Perhaps you've heard it this way. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. And that's exactly what's happening here. David is not doing his duty, and so he's about to sin. Now, David is also a very powerful man. 
And we understand this because David's house would be the tallest house in all of the city. From his roof, you could see anything. And what David sees is a beautiful woman. Now, David is not meant to see her. She is bathing, but she is not on display. She's actually trying to find a private place where no one will be able to see her because they're all busy and occupied. And there is not a hint in this text that Bathsheba is to be blamed. That she should not be doing what she's doing. No one else, it said, sees her. Just David the king. David is the one who is not where he is supposed to be. He is looking at something that he should not. He is dangerously hanging on the cliff. The question is, will he back away? Now, I want to stop for a moment and tell you, before we get more into the story, that David has already sinned. He already needs to repent and needs God's grace. Don't kid yourself by thinking, as long as David would have not acted further, he would have been fine before God. The mere temptation alone, the mere giving in to that sinful inclination, is a sin itself. And so when sin rises up in our hearts, we must squash it down and go immediately to the cross and go to our Lord and repent of sin. But David doesn't do that. He allows it to fester and advance. And that's the second thing we see about sin being dangerous. It's not only enticing sin in traps. And we see the answer to the question, will David back away in verses 3 and 4? David sends and inquires about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now it starts innocently enough. Who is she? What could be the harm in asking? Well, first the harm is that David is dwelling on a potential sin. Now, you may not have a roof you can walk on. But let me ask you a question. Have you watched something on television or seen an article in the news or something and seen a woman or a man and said, now, who is that? I wonder if I could Google them. I wonder if I could Google images of them and just see what pops up. You know, maybe they'll be in a bathing suit. Maybe they'll be in a sharp suit. Maybe I'll just be able to see them a little more, get to know them a little bit better. In one sense, that's really no different than what David is doing here. Why does David need to know who she is? Now, he is legitimizing a potential sin. Others now know what he's doing. They're not about to contradict him. But there are people there that he's speaking to, that he's asking. And the answer that he gets from them should have set off alarm bells. She is the wife of another man. And not only that, not just the wife of any man, but the wife of one of David's mighty men, Uriah the Hittite. One of his valiant soldiers. One of his most loyal subjects. And even more than that, she's not just the wife of a mighty man. She is, we know, from chapter 23 and verse 34, also the daughter 
of a mighty man. If any woman in Israel deserves respect from David, it's Bathsheba. The daughter and husband of David's trusted warriors. If David were thinking at this point, this would be the end of it. But it's not. Sin has not only drawn David in, it's trapped him. And so verse 4 gives us this rushed description. You see what the narrator does is he doesn't waste time with um, mannerisms. He doesn't waste time with motives. He doesn't tell us what Bathsheba's thinking or what David is thinking or what the messengers are thinking or what the servants are thinking. There's no pop-up bubbles to give us anything. It's all quick action focused entirely on David's action. And it's all bad. He sent. He took. He lay with her. There's no thought at all. There's no caring. There's no love. That is how sin works. Sin makes us stupid. We don't stop to think. We don't think about God. We don't think about the consequences. We don't even think about ourselves. All we focus on is what we think sin will give us. And so sin's trap is then fully sprung in verse 5. David thinks that this incident is over. It's a, a little dalliance. He won't have to worry about this ever again. And sin springs its trap in two Hebrew words. Well, three in the English. I am pregnant. David thought he could play with sin and be done. No. The narrator even makes sure that we know that David is caught and that he is responsible and can't get out. That's the point of the parenthetical in verse 4. David is the man. He is responsible. It's scientifically provable. James tells us that each person, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That is the chain. Temptation, desire, sin, death. James shows us that what's happening here in 2 Samuel 11 is not unique. The circumstances may not be universal, but the pattern certainly is. So then the second thing we see is that sin is not only dangerous, but that it is controlling. David is caught. And this is where David's past godliness is used against him by sin. Now we might expect this kind of behavior by Joab or Saul or from a Philistine, but not from David. There's no way that this will not be public. Shame will come. It will be a scandal it's not the sin that's the problem for David, it's the consequences. And there's an irony here, because it's not as if this was a total secret. Yes, Bathsheba's pregnancy is problematic, but David's servants knew he asked about her. He sent messengers to go get her. It's likely that this was talked about in the palace, that David's wives would have been upset by this. 
But what sin does here is it makes David more concerned about a form of godliness than following God. So David needs to find a way to cover up his sin. It's a path of deception. The whole idea here is not to repent of his sin, but to make it go away by hiding it. Isn't that often our temptation? When you sin and you realize it, are you tempted to try to find ways to hide it from those who are around you? To make sure that no one in the church knows, that none of your friends know, your children and family members don't know, perhaps even to hide it from your spouse. And then you, you live in fear when the phone rings, when someone asks you, how are you doing? What's really going on in your life? You say to yourself, do they know? Am I found out? What will happen? And so David forms a plan here. We see it in verse 6. Get Uriah the Hittite here. Now notice what sin has done to David already. He was a man known for his honesty, integrity, and kindness. Remember, this is the same man who refused to kill Saul and who was upset at the murders of Abner and Ishbosheth. Now, he is cold-blooded and calculating. Look at verse 7. He asks Uriah how things are going. Now, this is... Not a literary, literal translation, it is more of a figurative translation. David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And the reason it's not a literal translation is because the word here in the Hebrew is a word you've heard before. It's shalom. It means peace. And so if we were to translate it literally, we would say how Joab's peace is. How the people's peace is, and even how the peace of the war is. But you see, the point here is, David is looking and with a straight face saying to Uriah, how is everything going? It's got to be good. Tell, give me good news. Everything should be pleasant and good. Even as he's churning inside and plotting against the man he's facing. It's all a lie. A ruse. David figures he can easily solve this problem. Get Uriah to come back, go home, cover up the adultery, never think about it again. That's David's solution. It'll be past me. There's only one problem. Uriah won't play that game. Do you see in verse 9? Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go to his house. Why? Well, Uriah tells us. It's because he's too focused on his duty and on the Lord, which David wasn't, to do that. Uriah tells us, how could I do that when the ark and Israel and Judah and my commander and all of my people are in the camp? How could I think of myself? And so, that should have stung David. That's a left hook. Because the accusation here strikes true. David should have realized that that should have been him. But it wasn't. 
Now, I want you to notice that the narrator wants us to see this. Over and over again, we're told that Uriah did not go down to his house. We see it in verse 9. We see it twice in verse 10. We see it in verse 11 and again in verse 13. The narrator wants you to get the picture. Uriah didn't go to his house. Got it? And so David is going to continue down his descent. Temptation, the birth of sin, now lying. What next? It is not easy to get out of the clutches of sin. You need to think about this before you give in to temptation, not after. We might think that now is the time for David to give up, that he's stung by this rebuke from Uriah that's unintentional. His scheme has failed. It should have succeeded. You know, the odds makers in Jerusalem had great odds on Uriah going back to his house. They lost a lot of money here on counterbets because no one could imagine that Uriah would fail to do this. Now notice that this account here focuses entirely on David and his actions. We don't know what Uriah knows. Does Uriah, has he heard some rumors? We don't know. What is Bathsheba thinking at this time? We have no clue. All we see is an increasingly frantic David trying to get out of the grip of sin without confessing it. Now David has tried the easy way. Now he's going to try the hard way. He couldn't even get a drunk Uriah to go along with his plan in verse 13. And that makes it clear that there is only one way to David's mind. Uriah has to be taken out. If David's sin is to remain hidden, Uriah cannot be around to accuse him. Now, we have to note again that this will not cover David's sin. The more that he acts, the more people see it. David is being irrational here. He can't completely hide his sin. But he can try to escape the consequences of his sin. No one else would dare accuse David. He's too powerful. Only Uriah would, because Uriah has the most to lose. And we know that Uriah is a godly man. So David makes Uriah carry his own death warrant. Stop and think about this. We're talking about David here. The man after God's own heart. And not only has he moved from adultery to lying to plotting murder, he makes Uriah carry his own message of death. He signs the letter and seals it and hands it to Uriah and with a smile on his face says, make sure Joab gets this and he does everything that's in the letter. And Uriah says, yes, sir. Nothing can stop me from getting this letter to my Lord Joab. This is about David trying to maintain control. He is the one in charge. Uriah will be handled. Now this is another aspect of sin. Even while it has us in its grips and we can't escape, it allows us to think that we are in control, that we have power. 
And even if we're not plotting a murder, what are we doing to retain control of a situation, of a relationship? It's got to be our way. We'll show them. Well, that brings us then to the third thing we see about sin. The sin is deadly. We come now to the story and we cannot take our eyes away from it. We know what's going to happen here. Uriah has no chance. David wants him dead and he will be dead. It's not as if we can expect Joab to all of a sudden get morality and to disobey David. Think about the further irony here. What has sin done to David? It's taken David down to the level of Joab. Imagine Joab as he reads the letter. What does Joab think? I imagine he opened it and thought, Oh, David, you think you're so much better than me? Ha! You're just like me. At least when I murder people, I do it myself. I don't farm it out. You're just like me. And so in a moment, David's witness, his life of integrity, vanishes. It's gone. Hear me clearly now. Sin can blow up a life of faithfulness. It can destroy families, wealth, reputations, churches. Sin wants you to think it's a very small thing. But it is a very big deal. Now again, the narrator wants us to see that David has succeeded in his own eyes. Joab does as he's told, and without surprise, Uriah is dead, we see in verse 17. And that point is beaten into us. We're told of Uriah's death in verse 15, 17, 21, 24, and again in 26. Uriah is dead. Got it? David's done what he set out to do. David has escaped his sin. Uriah is gone. Now David can throw an honorary funeral for the warrior Uriah. He can eulogize Uriah, say what a wonderful man he was, what a glorious husband he was. He can even use Uriah's death to press the war against Ammon. It's got a political angle as well. In the end, all that matters is that Uriah is dead. David has made sure of that. Now we can imagine that David is now relieved. Now, well, we don't have to imagine it. Because we have it in the text before us, in David's response to the messenger. Joab had specifically told the messenger to mention Uriah's death. Just in case there was any criticism that came from David. And it may have been that Joab improved on David's plan. That Joab didn't just send Uriah up to the wall, but a whole contingent. Because what better way to hide the murder of one man than among the deaths of many? But David's answer is very telling in verse 25. You shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. David's answer is, don't let it bother you. These things just happen. It's a coincidence. It's chance. Bad luck for Uriah and some others. 
Now here let me give you a sharp point of application. What happens when you dodge the consequences of your sin? When people forget about it? Or when you are successful in hiding it? Are you relieved? Are you happy? Does it cause your sin to go out from your mind and you don't think of it anymore? Be very careful here. Because this is a false confidence. That was David's state of mind. A huge sigh of relief. No one will know about his sin. Well, except Bathsheba and Joab and the messengers and the servants that he sent and the whole palace gossip group. Well, except for all of them, no one will know about. Do you see the foolishness of trying to hide your sin? Sin makes you stupid. And the enemy of your soul wants you to try and manage your sin instead of confessing it and repenting. David thinks everything can go back to normal now. Bathsheba will go and do the customary mourning period. Then David will bring her to his house add her to his wives, she will have their son, and no one will think twice about it. As a matter of fact, some people might praise David for what he's done. How he's taken in a war widow. How he's caring for her. But there is one problem here. A problem that we see, and David doesn't. It starts in verse 26. Do you see it? She is deliberately called the wife of Uriah, not Bathsheba. The narrator will not let us forget. That's because God does not forget. The last line in verse 27 is what Ralph Davis calls the bottom line. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David had done everything in his considerable power to hide and deny his sin. It had cost lives, reputations, and integrity. But in the end, it didn't accomplish what he wanted. It could not wipe away his sin. He and we cannot escape the sight of God. God's judgment is always true, always aware. Verse 27 is actually reminiscent of verse 25. You see in both of these verses the phrase, do not let it displease you. In verse 25, David says, don't let it displease you, Joab, what's happened. And here in verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally what the Hebrew says is, the thing was evil in the sight of the Lord. God will not ignore sin. He cannot. He's holy. You may be sitting here today having avoided exposure of your sin by people. But not by God. There's no hope in hiding. The only hope you have is in confessing your sin and in repenting. And next week, we'll look at what that looks like. But this week, 
We are to see that all of our efforts to hide sin are vain. We are to see that we are not to give even the smallest amount of space for sin. All that does is lead to more sin. Jesus Christ did not die so that you might indulge in sin and hide it. He died so that you would be free from sin. It's guilt. It's shame. It's judgment. Think about what this story would look like if David had said, I'm going back to bed, in verse 2. Or if he'd gone to the Lord and confessed his sin, in verse 6. If he had repented and fallen on the grace of God. We will see that there is grace for the greatest of sinners in the next chapter. But don't think that this story would have been less glorious if David would have sought grace earlier. As you battle sin, the first thing that you must do is run to Jesus. Let's pray.